And you may have to kind of say, okay, what do I do first? And it's hard to, to decide sometimes, but by really zooming in on where can I make the biggest difference right now is really going to help. Welcome to the Onco PT podcast, where you'll learn from oncology experts, practitioners, and patients to help you on your journey to become a confident and competent Onco PT. Here's your host, Elise Contu. Hello there, and welcome to this episode of the Onco PT. I'm your host, Elise, and I'm so excited that you are back here joining me for another episode of the Onco PT. Now, as you've heard many times before, because I even just said it in a previous episode, it really depends when it comes to side effects and impairments that a person can experience as a result of their breast cancer or their breast cancer treatment. One of the biggest factors that contributes to potential impairments for a person is what kind of treatment they'll undergo. Now, again, brief recap. If you're wondering why the heck we're talking about breast cancer when it's August, Breast Cancer Awareness Month in the United States is October. Here's the skinny. And I really encourage you, go back to episode 194 to talk to listen to more about why I really encourage this. But October is coming. And we need to be planning now what we are going to do, how we're contributing to the increasing knowledge and awareness within our communities about breast cancer and how it affects a person. So Go back and listen to episode 194 if you haven't already. But today we're talking about when you encounter the person who's experienced breast cancer and they have a whole slew of impairments, how the heck do you cut through the chaos of the many impairments that they're likely experiencing and really start helping them? Now, as we know, many of these patients will undergo some combination of surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, maybe hormonal therapy, maybe even some immunotherapy. The exact protocol of their treatment really depends on their diagnosis, their prognosis, some patient-specific factors. But what we're going to talk about in this episode are what are some of the more common impairments patients can experience, how to screen for them, and then ultimately how to prioritize the laundry list of impairments that patients can experience as a result of their breast cancer and our breast cancer treatment. Now, the most common impairments that we see in this patient population are numerous, but let's just talk about a few of them. Cancer-related fatigue, again, we know this is one of the biggest ones, something around the lines of like 80% of people will experience cancer-related fatigue at some point. It's it's just massive, okay? So cancer-related fatigue, pain, upper quadrant dysfunction. I would even go beyond that with some maybe like more regional global impairments, lymphedema, decreased quality of life, anxiety, depression, difficulties with activities of daily living, CIPN, balance problems, falls, fertility issues, cardiovascular toxicities, cognitive issues, sleep disturbances, bowel, bladder, sexual dysfunction. I could go on. But I think we appreciate that the number of impairments that patients can experience are truly numerous. And depending on the patient, depending on the treatments that they underwent, the exact presentation that they may have may look very different. They may have all, they may have some, they may have any combination of these things. One thing to note here is that patients who undergo more treatment and more aggressive treatments are more likely to experience more significant impairments. So they'll go on to develop more significant impairments 
most likely. But I really need you to stop and listen to this next point. So if you've tuned me out, come back to me. Just because a person doesn't undergo as many treatments or doesn't undergo as aggressive of treatment does not mean that they will not develop significant impairments. For example, I've treated many patients who underwent a more conservative surgical treatment for their breast cancer. For example, a sentinel lymph node biopsy with a simple mastectomy. I still think simple is a little bit of a misnomer here, but I digress. So in this case, and I've had multiple patients here who have had one, two, three lymph nodes removed. Okay. That is so small in the grand scheme of things, considering that we've got, I think somewhere between like 20 to 30 lymph nodes per axilla roundabouts, right? And then these patients go on to develop full-blown lymphedema. Frankly, it's heartbreaking. This kind of thinking where we don't think that something will happen to a person just because they have less aggressive treatment or maybe worse yet, we tell patients that it's not going to happen, whether that's you, whether that's me, or whether that's someone on the medical team. Okay, so I'm lumping us all into this. This kind of thinking and this approach is detrimental, truly detrimental to the patient because they are relying on our expertise to tell them if they're going to experience something or not. And when we downplay the risks in efforts to maybe comfort the patient, I've been there. I will be the first to say that I have been here, right? We actually run the risk. We have the potential of not accurately informing our patient about what they could develop and experience down the road. And that is one of the biggest problems that I see. So again, I have done this before. I have had patients who have experienced this before who were literally told, nope, you're not going to develop lymphedema. Like it's just not going to happen because instead of talking to them about your risk for developing lymphedema is really small. They opted to say, no, you're probably not going to develop it. And then guess who is devastated and confused when they do develop lymphedema. And then that patient comes to us as the rehab professional. Most often, I hear this all the time, unfortunately. It's like, I didn't think this would happen to me. This wasn't supposed to happen to me. They told me this wasn't going to happen to me. And then we're kind of left to pick up the pieces. So let's make a pact here and now. We're not going to do that. It's hard. I really don't like to be the one who is going to tell the patient that, yes, you do have this risk. You do need to be aware of it. Like I hate that conversation. It sucks. But we're doing a disservice to our patients if we don't adequately inform them. You may be the one who is the bearer of bad news in that instance, especially if they've been told by someone else Dear surgeons, I love you, but I'm looking at you like lymphedema is always a possibility. So anyways, make sure that you're not downplaying risks to try and comfort a person when they really do need that information, please. Okay. I'm stepping off my soapbox now. 
So now that we've established that impairments abound in this particular patient population, we're kind of left with how the heck do we look at the person who is in front of us and is experiencing all these different side effects and impairments and then decide what the heck to do about it? I feel like if a person walked into my clinic and had a simple rotator cuff issue, like, oh, okay, I'm prepared to treat that, right? You probably feel the same. But what happens when that person has rotator cuff dysfunction and lymphedema also has some significant scar tissue? Oh, they've got radiation fibrosis on top of it. Oh, yeah. And then they also have cardiotoxicity from the anthracycline chemotherapy. What the heck do we do? How in the world do we simplify it to where we can get started? Because one of the things that I see a lot is therapists will get overwhelmed by the laundry list of impairments that patients can experience. And then they just shut down like, nope, can't treat this person, can't help them. And then they wash their hands and they're done with it. That's the worst thing that we could do. So what I'm going to give you are three questions that you can ask yourself in order to prioritize what you need to get started with. These questions are not listed in a particular order. I think they all warrant consideration when you encounter every single patient. There will be circumstances in which you choose one over the other. Commonly, though, I find myself asking all of these questions to try to figure out where do I get started? What should I start treating right here, right now, in order to really help the person? So question number one, what was the patient referred for? When I was at my previous job, all of my patients were referred to me by one of the in-house oncologists or someone else on the oncology team, okay? So that was my previous corporate position. This is how it was. So all my patients would walk in with a script. It would usually have one or two reasons for why they were referred to PT. And then that gave us a good starting point. So when the person comes in with a referral, the referral reason is most often the visible impairment or the most visible impairment to that referring provider. Or maybe it's the impairment that the referring provider noted as part of their own physical examination or even screening process. So for example, many of my patients would come in with a referral for lymphedema because it was very obvious that one arm was swelling and one arm was not, for example. So in this case, it's very easy to see that, okay, one arm is swollen, one arm is not, there is some lymphedema going on, this person needs rehab, get him sent over. But this isn't a foolproof method. Many times, the medical team is strapped for time, meaning that they are not going to have time to ask all the questions or even listen fully to what the patient is experiencing. And I'm not trying to hate on the oncology medical team here. This is kind of a reality for American healthcare in many circumstances. Sometimes patients answer yes, that they're experiencing blah, blah. But that's not actually something that bothers them on a day-to-day -day basis or keeps them from doing things that they want to do or need to do. I've definitely had patients who were referred for a problem they didn't even know that they had or they didn't know that it was a big of a problem as what it was until they come in to see me and I ask them, what brings you in today? And they say, I don't know. That was always a winner. Now, this is a good starting point, but this doesn't always 
necessarily help you prioritize impairments. It may just be the most visible impairment that the referring provider saw and then wrote down as to why they referred them to PT. So another thing that you can ask yourself is, what is the patient complaining about most? Starting first with the patient's big complaint is a fantastic way to really show the patient that you're paying attention to them. And let's face it, we can all stand to do that a little more. As I mentioned earlier, patients spend very little time with their oncologist compared to when they come to see us simply because there's so many other patients who also require the oncologist time. So this means that the medical team are prioritizing their own questions that they have to ask as part of their scope of practice. And they may not be fully assessing side effects or impairments that the person could be experiencing. It could also be, as we're well aware, that the oncologist or the other medical team members don't know that they should be screening patients for X, Y, and Z impairment. They may just not know. And so in this case, I really like to ask the patients what brings them in to see me. And then I stop talking, which I know is hard for me. Some of you are probably laughing right now. But by putting the patient in the driver's seat, this allows them to really tell you what's bothering them. And if you listen long enough, they'll tell you how it's bothering them, what it is keeping them from doing, for example. Now, the temptation as a newer provider, and I definitely have done this, and I continue to struggle with this and continue to try and prove with this, the temptation as a newer provider is to immediately start asking follow-up questions, or even worse, to interrupt the person as they're talking, so that we can stick with this idea of the flow, how we want the eval to go in our mind. And again, I say this with a full recognition. I do this and I have done this and I am really working hard to stop doing this because I'm shooting myself in the foot. Now, I know that it's really hard, especially when say like the eval starts late and we're crunched for time because we have to do this, this, and this. And then we also have to figure out how the heck are we going to document this, whatever. But this is actually one of the worst things that we can do. By focusing the eval truly on the patient and even allowing them to drive the eval, this can help us really listen to and determine what's bothering the patient and how it's bothering them. And through this, we really have the opportunity to demonstrate that we care about the patient and that what is important to them is important to us. While this is my favorite way to prioritize impairments, it's not always the best way. And here's why. Sometimes patients are experiencing different side effects and different impairments that are compounded by others. So even though this impairment is the squeaky wheel, it's the one that they're complaining about, that they are seeing and perceiving that is bothering them the most, we as the rehab professional may actually see that, you know what, this impairment is actually contributing to or exacerbating this impairment over here. And we may have to actually work on this first before we can really make headway on this particular impairment, which happens to be the patient's number one complaint. So the third question I encourage you to ask yourself is, where can I make the biggest difference right now or as soon as possible? Because again, sometimes there are very 
competing factors here that are very problematic for the patient. And you may have to kind of say, okay, what do I do first? And it's hard to to decide sometimes, but by really zooming in on where can I make the biggest difference right now is really going to help. I once had an eval with a gentleman who had metastatic colorectal cancer and his cancer, bless his heart, was one of the most widespread cancers that I had ever seen clinically. He had significant metastasis all up and down his lumbar spine, in his pelvis, definitely other places too, to the point that he actually underwent a pelvic exenteration. Quick note on this, if you're not familiar, because I definitely wasn't when I saw this patient, a pelvic exenteration is where they basically go in and they scoop out everything inside the pelvis and take it out. So this patient was left with a, um, a colostomy, so external bag for his fecal matter. And then he also had an external bag for where his urine was collected as well. Huge surgery. And then in the process, the surgical note was not very descriptive, but what we believe went on is that the surgeon also cut some of his adductor muscles and reflected them up to recreate the pelvic floor because he had to remove so much during surgery again, because of how widespread that cancer was. So I tell you all this to kind of set the scene on just how many impairments that this person was experiencing. Pain, difficulty, walking, difficulty, sitting, difficulty, standing. I mean, all the things some significant gait abnormalities, weakness. I mean, truly the list went on with this patient to the point that I was so overwhelmed with everything that this guy was experiencing. And for him, you know, he had a couple impairments that he was really saying like, yeah, this is really bothering me. But there was no one thing that really rose to the surface because truly it was all so interconnected. Now I knew I was in over my head with this patient case but we couldn't get this person in to see the pelvic floor therapist for many weeks. And we needed to get started with something in the meantime. So towards the end of the evaluation, my head is spinning. And I just told my patient, I said, I need a minute to kind of think. And so I sat with my patient in the quiet and I just thought, and my mind is racing. I'm thinking, what the heck? (laughs) I don't even know where to start. I'm kind of going back over the eval trying to prioritize all the different things that this patient's experiencing. And then I noticed something. As I'm thinking and I'm watching my patient, I'm noticing that all of his breathing is basically coming from his upper chest and like his throat. There is no abdominal movement whatsoever. So that gave me an idea. I started this patient on diaphragmatic breathing talk to him about what it is, the purpose, and then also the benefits of diaphragmatic breathing, which can include some pain relief. Pain was a big thing for this person, and he really had a hard time managing it to the point where he could get stuff done. I remember he talked about he was trying to uh, redo his bathroom for his wife, which was like one of the sweetest things. And so he was having to get down and do tile work, but he was so limited by pain, he really couldn't do that. And it wasn't like it was, you know, knee pain or something. It was like literally that cancer, that cancer pain that some patients experience. 
So I assigned him diaphragmatic breathing for his home exercise program. And then afterwards, I went home and I talked with my good friend and friend of the podcast, Beth Hogue, who is a pelvic floor physiotherapist with a tremendous amount of experience in this patient population. What this experience taught me is that I will not always have the answers. As much as I like to think that I do, or that I will someday, I won't always have the answers. I won't always have a clear cut idea of like, this is what I should attack first. Sometimes we have to stop and look at what will make a difference for the patient right here, right now. Was breathing the biggest problem that this person was experiencing at that moment? No, actually. But it was one of the issues that was definitely contributing to some of the other things that he was experiencing. I knew that I could potentially make a difference with his pain and maybe improve his activity tolerance if we started incorporating diaphragmatic breathing into his program. We won't always get this part right. But sometimes asking ourselves, where can I make a difference right now or as soon as possible for the patient is truly the best place to get started, especially when we have a very complex patient in front of us. When you're working with the patient with breast cancer, it can be overwhelming to imagine or even see all of the impairments that this person is experiencing. However, when we stop to assess the whole picture, and truly prioritize what is most important to address first, it becomes a lot simpler. I didn't say it became easy, but it becomes a lot simpler for us to manage. You know, the only way to eat an elephant is one bite at a time, for example. So the next time you find yourself getting overwhelmed with a complex patient who has multiple impairments, or maybe a not so complex patient, but has a lot going on, Come back to this episode and refresh yourself on these three questions you can ask to help prioritize the impairments your patient is experiencing. So now I want to hear from you. What did I miss? What other questions should maybe we be asking ourselves to help prioritize the impairments patients are experiencing? Message me on Instagram at theoncopt and let me know. Until next time, this is Elise with the OncoPT. And remember, you are exactly the physical therapist that your patients with cancer need. So let's get to work. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Onco PT podcast. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, leave a rating and review, or support us on Patreon. 